Bible. It's an amazing story, not just of courage, but of faith. We will discover that Jonathan will place his faith in God despite all the odds. It's such an incredible account that when you hear it, you may find it hard to believe. Well, if it is hard for us to believe, just imagine Jonathan actually living through it and Jonathan actually exercising such a unique faith in God in the midst of such difficult and hard circumstances. It should be an inspiring story to us all, but it's absolutely necessary to keep in mind that it is not merely a fictional tale that is intended to be inspirational. It's not like Aesop's fable, where a myth is told that is intended to teach a moral lesson. Rather, it is a factual event in history that details how God has delivered his people. It is a narrative that provides us with the understanding of how such a weak and fledgling nation begins to be established and ultimately is going to become a world power. It is due to the intervention of the Almighty God. The theme this morning is lessons on faith. And my outline is quite simple. There are going to be four sections. First, the occasion for faith, then the obstacles to faith, then the occurrence of faith, and then lastly, the outcome of faith. So let's begin by looking at the occasion for faith. The occasion is a battle to be waged against the Philistines. As the narrative opens, the Philistines are preparing for battle. Verse 15 of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 15. Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. That is the army of the Philistines. Both the Israelites and the Philistines had assembled for war. The end of verse, uh, verse 16. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at uh, Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. The Philistines were advancing against the Israelites. Verse 17. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. And the Israelites were being surrounded. Middle of verse 17. <clears throat> One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Bethoran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Seboim toward the wilderness. The point is they're being surrounded. So the occasion for faith is this military battle that is being anticipated. Will God deliver them? Will they indeed trust in the Lord? As we begin by talking about this occasion for faith, as we think about it in our own lives, we might ask ourselves, what occasions do we find ourselves in in which we need to be exercising faith? Uh, think about that, your own personal experience. What is there in my life at this moment that might be an occasion in which I need to exercise faith? But again, this is simply, uh, not just simply a moralistic lesson on individualized, personalized faith, it's also a lesson of God intervening for the nation of Israel. And so I would ask 
you what are the occasions nationalistically and in our world in which we need to be exercising faith. What are the occasions for us to be trusting in God in light of all that's going on in the United States and all that is going on in the world? What are the occasions for faith? What we want to do next is look at the obstacles to faith. Why it would have been so difficult for Jonathan to be exercising faith in this particular instance. As we look at the obstacles to faith, I've divided them into two main categories. They are obstacles that have to do with the military, and then there are the obstacles that have to do with those that are around Jonathan. So first, the obstacles are associated with the military, and they are three huge obstacles as we think about the military. The first is that the Israel's army was woefully ill-equipped to go to battle against the Philistines. The Israelites did not even have the most basic implements of warfare. If you look at verse 22, it says, So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. They didn't even have any swords or spears. Now the fact that the Israelite army did not have any weaponry demands an explanation. That seems just out there, it seems incredible. How could you have an army that doesn't even have spears and swords? So the uh, narration is given to us to help us understand what were the circumstances that brought that to pass. They are this. The Israelites had been under the domination of the Philistines for some time. And the Philistines were no dummies. They thought ahead. And just in case the Israelites would get the idea that they wanted to rebel against the oppression of the Philistines, the Philistines made it impossible for the Israelites to make any weaponry for battle. If you look at verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. Here's the reason. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. They realized that just like the day finally came, there would come a time in which Israel would want to rebel against the Philistines. And they said, so we're going to make it so they don't have any weaponry, uh, no swords, no spears. So the Israelites were dependent upon the Philistines to have any sharpened metals of any kind, verse 20. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And to add insult to injury, the Philistines made them pay dearly for the tools that they sharpened. Verse 21. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. Point was, this was expensive. This was a hardship. This was a difficulty for the children of Israel. So I say, insult added to injury. So the result was that the Israelites did not have any <coughs> weaponry whatsoever. They didn't even have what they needed for the most basic hand-to-hand -hand combat. Verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand 
of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. The Israelites were literally having to go into this battle empty-handed. It's a pretty significant obstacle. On the other hand, the Philistines had an incredible arsenal of weapons. Look at 13.5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now think about that for a moment. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. The chariots would be like our tanks today. And the horses would have been like the motorized vehicles to transport the troops from one place to another in a rapid form. So the Philistines had horses and they had chariots, of which, of course, Israel had none. They didn't even have spears or swords. So it would be like going to battle with throwing stones against a tank. That's what they were facing, as far as weaponry is concerned. The second military obstacle that the Israelites had to deal with was the fact that they were woefully outnumbered. Woefully outnumbered. At this point, Israel's army numbers 600 strong. Look at 1315. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. And uh, at the end of that verse, verse 15, and with him about 600 men. Now that fact is repeated in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 2, so you don't miss it. 1 Samuel 14, 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the uh, pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now compare that to the size of the Philistine army. We already said they had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and then it says, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Couldn't even number the troops. They came up and encamped in Mechmash to the east of Beth Haven. Would you like those odds? 600 against 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and an infantry that can't be numbered. Now you might think things couldn't get any worse than that. But they do. They do. There's a third obstacle. And the third obstacle is that they don't have battlefield advantage. They are in the worst case scenario. The fight is going to take place at a pass in 1 Samuel 13, verse 23. The garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, meaning that there is going to be a cliff on one side, there's going to be a cliff on another side, and there's going to be a, a tight uh, pass that one needs to go through to get to the other side. The Philistines had the higher ground. They could shoot down on the Philistines, excuse me, they could shoot down on the Israelites as they approached. That's found in 1 Samuel 14, 6 to 10, and I'll go into that in more detail a little later on. 
So they have the worst place on the battlefield they could. <clears throat> they are in a low position, and the Philistines have a high position, and the Israelites have to go through a pass that is controlled by the Philistines, and they can just render down all kinds of misery upon them. That was a big disadvantage. There is an account in history of a battle that took place between the Spartans and the Persian army. And, uh, it's a pretty famous battle. In fact, it was turned into a movie where there were 300 Spartan warriors holding the Persian army of between 100,000 to 300,000 at bay for two days. It's an incredible account, but the reason they were able to do it was because it was a pass, and they had the advantage. And the Persian army lost the advantage of all the soldiers that they had because they had to go through in such a, a small file. Well, eventually, the Spartans lost, but it's pretty incredible that they hold out for two days. Israel didn't even have that advantage. They had to go through the pass. They didn't control the pass. So militarily, things look pretty hopeless. Do they not? Can you agree with that? Uh, would you want to have been on Israel's side, or would you rather have been on the side of the Philistines as you just kind of look over the battlefield? So that's a great obstacle to face. The second main category of obstacle of faith was the lack of spiritual encouragement that Jonathan encountered. His faith was unique, for others did not share in that faith that he possessed. First, there is the weak faith of his father's soul. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1, it says, One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young men, who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And now these words, but he did not tell his father. He did not tell his father. Uh, we are told that primarily because later, next week, we're going to see that that creates an issue uh, that uh, Saul doesn't know that Jonathan has left. But today, let me just say that this is not a situation where we have all heard those kinds of things where people say it's better to seek forgiveness rather than to seek permission. That's not what's going on here. It's a statement of Saul's reluctance despite God's promise. He's hiding out at a cave in Migron. We find out earlier in the chapter that there are loads of Israelites that are hiding in caves at this time. Saul had been told by Samuel at the time of Samuel's anointing of Saul to be king, he says this, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come up to me. So when he was anointed as king, Samuel had told Saul, you're going to deliver the nation of Israel from the Philistines. He knew that. He had that promise of God. But he's not the one acting. He's not the one going forward. In fact, Jonathan doesn't even tell him that he's going to go out to battle because Saul's going to be against it. He's going to think it's a foolhardy scheme 
and he's going to oppose it. Then there's the absence of the spiritual leader, Samuel. If you go back to 1315, it says, Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So Samuel has left. Last week we saw that uh, Saul had disobeyed God in offering sacrifices that he should not have offered. He should have been waiting for Samuel. Samuel speaks of God's judgment, and Samuel leaves. So Samuel's not even on the scene. Samuel's the great spiritual leader of the time. He is the one that has promised victory to the nation of Israel, but he's left. In Samuel's stead, there's the presence of the high priest that has been rejected by God. 1 Samuel 14, 2 and 3. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Abijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod, meaning he was the high priest. Now, God had rejected Eli's family from the priesthood. Here is one that God is angered at. He is in the camp. Samuel is not present. That's not a good thing. We'll look at that a little later on. The only positive encouragement that Jonathan is going to receive comes from his armor bearer. 1 Samuel 14, 6-7. Jonathan said to the young men who carried his armor, Come, let us go over the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving many or but few. Verse 7, And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Well, that's great. He has a terrific armor bearer who says, I'm with you. I'll go wherever you go. I'll fight wherever you fight. I'll do what you do. Jonathan has an armor bearer. That's it. And there's no other encouragement or help to be found. He is virtually all alone. I submit to you that's a great obstacle to face. Have you ever been in a situation where you are the only person of faith? Have you ever been alone in, in the workplace? You don't know of any other Christians that uh, uh, are at the workplace? Have you ever been alone, perhaps, on a, on a team? You're the only Christian. Everyone else who isn't a Christian? Have you ever been all by yourself in any particular situation? Most of us usually are surrounded by Christians. We're surrounded with people that believe and are concerned with the same things that we are. Most of us have people that will be praying for us and encouraging us and helping us and patting us on the back and say, you can do it. Stand for the Lord. Samuel has, excuse me, uh, Jonathan has no such encouragement. So I submit to you that the obstacles to faith are huge. They're all the military obstacles and then they're all the spiritual obstacles. Which brings us then to the occurrence of faith. 
Nevertheless, despite all the obstacles, Jonathan exercises faith in the Lord. By faith, Jonathan recognizes that their Philistines have a great weakness. The Philistines have a tremendous disadvantage. In fact, it's such a huge disadvantage, it will prove to be their downfall. And Jonathan recognized it, and Jonathan knew it. They had an Achilles heel. They were defenseless in one way. In that one way, you ready? God wasn't on their side. God wasn't on their side. The Philistines had no relationship to God. Verse 6 of chapter 14. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these, here's the key word, uncircumcised it may be the Lord will work for us. They're uncircumcised. They're not a part of God's covenant. They're not a people of God. God is not going to be helping them. That fact alone, namely that the Philistines did not have God on their side, would tip the balance in Israel's favor. That's what he believed. That having God on his side was more important than all the things that we had just talked about. Notice the middle of verse 6 of chapter 14. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It just might be that God is going to help us. So in faith, Jonathan firmly believes that God's power is able to overcome all the military obstacles the Israelites were facing. Jonathan is convinced that nothing can prevent the Lord from saving his people when God desires to do so. Notice what he says at the end of verse 6 of chapter 14. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Key statement in this whole passage. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That wasn't just a religious platitude. That wasn't just a a nice knick-knack to hang on his wall at home. It isn't just a theological pronouncement that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few, it was on the part of Jonathan a heartfelt conviction. It is what he believed in the innermost recesses of his soul. It is how he perceived life. It is how he looked at this battle. He said, nothing can hinder the Lord. From saving by many or by few. And if you unpack that statement, the first is quite obvious. 
And that is, it does not matter that the Israelites are outnumbered. For the Lord can save by many or by few. But he goes on to say, it does not matter that the Israelites are outgunned. For it says, for nothing can hinder the Lord. It doesn't matter about the weaponry. And it doesn't even matter that the Israelites have the worst position on the battlefield. For nothing can hinder the Lord. The armor bearer is convinced, verse 7. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I will go with you. uh, And I am with you, heart and soul. Again, not just a religious platitude, but an outwork and an outview and an outlook on life. We pride ourselves of believing in a sovereign God. We use that terminology a lot. God is almighty. God is all-powerful. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's what we say. But what are the obstacles that we face in life in which we say, but, but, in this instance, we can't really trust the Almighty God. In this situation, we wonder if this God, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, is able to supply for us. We wonder if God can come through. If his hand is greater than the multitude of hands that are opposed us. For Jonathan, it was not a question of God's ability to deliver. Rather, it was a question, does God want to deliver us? And that's often the question we have in life. It's not so much, can God do such and such, but does God want to do such and such for me? So that was Jonathan's dilemma. Is God wanting him to go into battle at this time? So Jonathan devises a plan to determine if God's will is for them to go to battle or not. The plan is given to us in verses 8 through 10. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will come across uh, over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. Wait, if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. I'm not going to go into all the issues about raising uh, signs today, but I would just simply say that's what he did. It's a risky plan, for he's going to come out of hiding. He's going to reveal himself to the army. And he says, if they're going to say that they'll come down to fight us, then God's not on our side. But if they say, you come up and fight against us, then he says, God is on our side. Then we'll know. So they execute the plan, verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the, Phil- 
<clears throat> the Philistines are surprised that they would come out of hiding. Middle of verse 11. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. They're actually going to come to this battle. So the Philistines taunt them to come up and fight against them. Verse 12. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. All right. Go ahead. Come on up. Fight us. And we're going to show you who's king. We're going to show you who's boss. Come at us. We can't wait. They're taunting them to the battle. That's all Jonathan needed to hear. Because that's what he was waiting to hear. This was the answer. If they say come up, then God is on our side. Verse 12. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. We will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. <laughs> They're defeated. Let's go. Because God is on our side. That was the occurrence of faith. He acted. When God showed him that it was indeed his will and that he would indeed give him the victory, Jonathan exercised faith. He went to battle. Now we move to the outcome of faith. The obstacles that were so great were indeed overcome. And that's the emphasis of the next section, the outcome of faith. The obstacles were overcome. Remember, first of all, there were three military obstacles. All of them were overcome because he said nothing can hinder the Lord from saving the army uh, by saving by many or by few. The first was the last that we mentioned, and that is the lack of strategic military position proves to be no obstacle at all. Remember the pass. And they're going to be fighting at a pass. Jonathan is going to have to scale a rock face in order to enter into this battle against the Philistines. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up. Climbed up. He is climbing up a rock face. Notice verses 4 and 5 of 1 Samuel 14. 14, 4, and 5. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other was uh, Seneth. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. So he's on the south side. And he's going to have to crawl down his rock face, go across a narrow open area, and he's going to have to climb up a rock face with the Philistines standing on the top. Notice his vulnerable position, verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up 
and these words on his hands and feet. All right, because he's scaling a rock face. He's not walking. Doesn't have his spear, uh, doesn't have his sword drawn as he's marching toward these Philistines. No, they're standing at top. He is climbing up his hands. He can't, his hands aren't even free to defend himself or to web, wield any kind of weaponry. And they just stop and watch him. They can't believe his audacity. <laughs> Look at this guy. Come on up. Come on up. You can do it. Keep going. Yeah, you'll get there. And they're, they're, they're having a great time. Come up against us. And Jonathan and his armor bearer prevail. Verse 13. They climbed up on the hands and feet and the armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And they overcome some pretty tough odds. Verse 14. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land, which comes out to be about half an acre. So they have a pretty impressive victory. Jonathan and his armor bearer take on 20 men on the top of a cliff in the space of about half an acre of field, and they are victorious over this group of 20 men. That's great stuff. That's, that's good. Well, what's 20 men? Remember, they got 30,000 chariots. They got 6,000 horsemen. They've got, a, a, they've got an infantry that you can't even number. And they're able to knock off 20. There's a long way to go here, people. Uh, there's a lot more obstacles to overcome. So the second obstacle was the size of the army. So what happens to the army? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. All the Philistines become hysterical wherever they were. They thought that they were facing an unexpected attack, verse 15. And there was a great panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. So that covers the whole area. The camp, the field, and the people. The garrison... And even the raiders trembled. That's the people that they'd sent out ahead. That's the Green Berets. That's the macho guys. And they all think that they are under attack. They didn't expect the Israelites to be ready to fight. Uh, they aren't on the alert. They're taken aback. And they said, wow, they're here, they're here, they're here, they're here. They're... And, and they just knocked off 20 of our best guys. Even the noblest soldiers were afraid. But of course, that wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't be enough. So God dramatically intervenes by creating an earthquake. Verse 15. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and now these words, the earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. There was an earthquake. The earth shook. You're shook. 
The earthquake itself would have been enough for a reason to fear. I don't know, have you ever been through an earthquake? I haven't. I hear it's not the most pleasant experience to undergo. But the ground is quaking beneath them. But it's more than just the natural catastrophe of it. The Philistines had fought the Israelites in the past. And God had come to the defense of the Israelites in the past. And the Philistines recognized that God was fighting for Israel. And at that point, it says at the end of verse 15, and it became a very great panic. They were at wit's end. Now they viewed themselves in trouble. Now they were afraid. Now they were on the defensive. Back at the Israelite encampment, the lookouts that were on duty can't believe what they are seeing. The Philistines were running away. Verse 16, the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked. And behold, I love all the places in 1 Samuel where it says behold. You're supposed to stop and think about this. Behold, behold. The multitude was dispersing here and there, it says at the end of verse 16. So the watchmen are there, the guards, and, and they just can't believe their eyes. The, the Philistines are running away. The, the army is crumbling. And I mean, they're, they're melting away. And so the army is losing its side, its size. The other outcome of faith is that there are obstacles concerning faith that had to be overcome. Remember that he had no one else that believed in God's power to deliver as he had. So that obstacle had to be overcome. Well, first, Saul is strengthened in his faith. Initially, Saul is going to superstitiously seek the Lord's help. Now, you've got to follow me on this, verse 18. So Saul said to Abijah, after he hears about uh, this uh, victory, uh, excuse me, this uh, Israel, uh, the Philistines' army just disintegrating, verse 18. So Saul said to Abijah, bring the ark of the God here. At this point in time, they were bringing the ark to the battlefield for God's help. Verse 18. Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now that should be a familiar story to us. That, that should raise a red flag. It's not that long ago that we were in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Remember the last time Israel took the Ark of the Covenant to fight a battle against the Philistines. Remember what happened? The Ark is captured. The Israelites are defeated because they were putting their faith superstitiously in this Ark rather than putting it in the Lord. All that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And if you remember at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, after Israel is defeated and after the ark has been taken captive by the Philistines, word comes back and uh, Eli falls over and 
dies, and the wife of one of Eli's son is pregnant, and we read this. Now, the daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she had heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women <coughs> attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. That's what Ichabod means. The glory has departed. She said, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband had died, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. And she named her son Ichabod. Now, lo and behold, look at 1 Samuel 14, 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Abijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing the ephod. Israel's right back to where they were in chapter 4. Trusting in the ark and having one of the descendants of Eli as high priest. God told them, don't do either of those things. They were at wit's end. They, they didn't know what to do. They were, they were clutching at straws. And so, bring us the ark. Bring us the priest. Bring us whatever you, you got. In the meantime, Saul is making plans with the priest The battle is getting worse and worse for the Philistines and better and better for the Israelites. Verse 19. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So it was obvious that something incredible is happening down there and we're getting the advantage. Now the end of verse 19, it's such a simple statement, but it's huge. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Saul said, don't bring the ark. Saul has finally got some backbone. Saul is finally starting to put his faith and trust in the Lord. Saul is a saved individual, but Saul was a person weak in faith. And time and time again, is disobedient to God. But when he saw what God was doing, he said, wait a minute. This isn't the way we should go. So, his faith is overcome. Next, the 600 soldiers who were with Saul are strengthened in their faith. And they go to battle. Verse 20, then Saul said to all the people who were with him, rallied and went into the battle. So now the 600 are ready to go. Now the third and final military obstacle of Philistines' weaponry is, is over. I hadn't dealt with that one yet because the text hadn't done it. The two we looked at, the, the numbers of people and the uh, 
strategic place on the battlefield. The third was they didn't have any weapons. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied, and they went into the battlefield, and behold! Look at this one. Behold! Behold! Don't miss it. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. The Philistines are so confused in this battle that some are fighting against each other. Others are just running away. And the result is that people are dying. Their swords are on the ground. They are leaving their weaponry behind. And it says, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. The Israelites were using the Philistine swords against the Philistines. And the more they killed, the more weapons they got. God supplied them with the military ammunition from taking it from their enemies. Next, the traitors are strengthening their faith. Verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and had gone up to them into the very camp, now these words, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who with Saul and Jonathan. So there were people that had defected. There there were cowards, there were traitors that had sided with the Philistines because they thought that their side, the Israelites, didn't have a chance. And so they absconded and they went with the Philistines. But when they saw how things were going, they turned on the Philistines. And they went back on the side of the Israelites, which they should have been all along. And then lastly, all those soldiers who were extremely frightened back in chapter 13, when it says they were hiding in the, the uh, camp and stuff, remember they start off with 4,000, and their ranks had dwindled to 600 because everybody was so afraid. All those guys come back, verses uh, 14-22. When all the men of Israel had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard with them in the battle. So the numbers are being overcome, the weaponry is being overcome, the place on the battlefield is being overcome, and here's the great lesson, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. So the Lord saved Israel that day. There's so much more in this passage. I I really would have liked to have gone to the end of the chapter because it's all intertwined, but it's just way, way too long. So we'll look at it next week. But the point of today is the Lord saved Israel that day. Not Jonathan and all that he had done. He did not even know what God was going to do or how he was going to do it. He simply believed that God could and would. It was the Lord who saved Israel. It was the Lord who gave them victory. It was the Lord who would make them a great nation. Israel was never to forget that lesson. But unfortunately, they did. Unfortunately, they did. It was God who had given the victory to Israel.
as we apply this passage of Scripture, uh, my fear is this morning that we may have forgotten what God has done for our nation in the past. George Washington was a born-again believer. George Washington was very open about his faith. And in March 13, 1792, George Washington, of course, is after the victory, after the Revolutionary War, after he has become president, President George Washington wrote, I quote, I am sure that never was a people who had more reason to acknowledge a divine interposition in their affairs than those of the United States. And I should be pained to believe that they have forgotten that agency, which was so manifested during the revolution, or that they failed to consider the omnipotence of that God who alone is able to protect. George Washington wrote a letter saying, I'm afraid that we are forgetting that it is God and God alone that can protect us. George Washington realized they never should have won the Revolutionary War. He said, if any nation can see and understand the power of God, it should be ours, is what George Washington wrote. And he said, may we never forget God's omnipotence in delivering us. It is God who made our nation great. The Puritans came to this country looking for religious freedom and wanted to establish a people for God. Many of our founding fathers were men of great faith. George Washington, as I said, is a man of prayer and a man of the scriptures. He kept a prayer journal, and that portions of that prayer journal have survived to this day. You can purchase it on uh, Kindle for two ninety nine, which I did, and I've read it all, and it's really amazing. Of uh, the many many prayers, and he offered them at uh, Valley Forge seeking God's help, seeking protection for the troops, etc., etc. One prayer is written on May 1st, 1777. It was on the day that he received the news that France was going to join the colonies in the war. That was a real turning point when the French decided that they were going to help us and they were going to fight with us against the British. This was his prayer when he heard that the... Uh, French were going to join the battle. I quote, And now, Almighty Father, if it is thy holy will that we should obtain a place and name among the nations of the earth, grant that we may be enabled to show our gratitude for thy, for thy goodness by our endeavors to fear and obey thee. Bless us with thy wisdom in our counsels, success in battle, and let all our victories be tempered with humanity. Endow also our enemies with enlightened minds that they may become sensible of their injustice and willing to restore our liberty and grace. 
grant the petition of thy servant for the sake of him whom thou hast called thy beloved son. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When he heard the news that France was going to be on our side, it made him pray all the more for God's help and for God's enablement. In this time of great social and civil unrest, we see rioting, looting, and violence. And we think that it's unprecedented. May we never lose sight that we had an awful civil war in this nation. In the midst of that civil war, the President of the United States emancipated the slaves. What drove Abraham Lincoln to such an act? Why did he do such a thing? It was his faith in God. He believed he had the moral responsibility to end such a heinous injustice. The Civil War. Christianity Today wrote, and I quote, Major revivals broke out in the Civil War armies. In the Union Army, between 100,000 and 200,000 soldiers were converted. Among Confederate forces, approximately 150,000 troops converted to Christ. Perhaps 10% of all Civil War soldiers experienced conversion during the conflict. 10% of the armies on both sides in the midst of the Civil War placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Civil War was the beginning and the outbreak of, 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 of camp fire services and of camp meetings and all of the rest. My point to you is we have seen God work in the past. In the scriptures, and even in our own experience in our own nation. Never forget what God can do. He can save by a few or by many. You may be the only person at work, you may be the only person on your team, you may be the only person that you are aware of, but you can make a difference in standing for God. You can be a source of great encouragement and spiritual help to others. Through you, others can be emboldened. Through you, others can be, put to faith, uh, bring, be brought to faith. Put your trust in the Lord. Take your eyes off the obstacles. So many times, the obstacles loom so far in front of us that we lose sight of the Almighty God. The obstacles are reasons for doubts, fears, and yes, we say failure. But remember, God is greater than that. At such a time, we need to take a fresh view of God. Ask God what he wants us to do and that we can do it. George Washington is so refreshing. I would encourage you, buy the journal, read his prayers. And as you do, you will know that the founding president of our country was convinced that it was not our military that was going to make us great or safe. It is not our economy 
as the Philistines were seeking to keep the Israelites impoverished and unable to make weaponry, it's not our governmental leaders as evidenced in the person of Saul. It is God's people who place their faith in an almighty God that will make our nation great and strong. Don't take your eyes off of God. Don't substitute anything or anyone else as the source of your faith and your confidence in the future of our nation, of our world, and our own personal lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to have faith in you. Help us in deep and uh, troubling and dark times, remember that in many ways this is nothing compared to what we've gone through in the past. We think of rioting, we think of unrest. Many of us have lived through the 60s. There were so much more tumultuous than this. When we think of all of the obstacles, when we think of the difficulties, when we think of the economy, may we never lose sight that there's this nation went through a great depression. When we think of foreign powers, when we think of our enemies, may we never lose sight that we had a revolutionary war, we had a World War I, we had a World War II. Oh God, restore and renew our faith in you. May our faith not be a platitude. When Jonathan said that God could save by many or by a few, and nothing could hinder him, he believed it wholeheartedly. Every time that we pass our currency, it says in God we trust. May that not be a platitude. But Lord, renew and restill, rekindle our faith in you. For with you, all things can be done. We thank you and praise you for being our God. Thank you and for saving us your people. Help us to have faith in you. In Jesus' name.